Please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're starting in verse 20 this morning. A conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked, what was the most difficult instrument to play? Uh, He answered, the second violin. He said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second violin with enthusiasm, if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Now, I'm not a violinist, but I did, for much of my school-growing years, play trumpet, and I can tell you that while there might not be a lot of second-chair violins, there's nobody that enjoys being a second-chair trumpeter. There's, I think, just a certain level of ego that has to come with good trumpet playing. Because as a second chair, if you're not familiar with that musical term, what a second chair does is fills in the harmony of, uh, of the music. It fills in much of the background parts of things. You don't get the solos, you don't get the screaming cool parts. You are there mainly to fill in the gaps and make even really the, the, the top guy, the first chair, sound better. I remember in, in middle school, we would have the opportunity to challenge for our chairs uh, you would, you would in, in playoffs, auditioning against one another in the room that you played in was always, uh, the doorway out was always jam-packed with others who were trying to reclaim your spot as soon as you were done challenging for the other. And as we come to this morning to Matthew chapter 20, uh, in our series Kingdom Come, looking at the theme of the kingdom of heaven through the gospel of Matthew, we see that among the disciples this morning, no one likewise is interested in playing the second role playing the second violin, playing the second trumpet. The last several chapters, as we've studied this, we've seen that Jesus has been steadily making his way towards Jerusalem. The disciples think that he's going to Jerusalem to establish a kingdom, and in one sense they are right. They have the right aim, but they have the wrong means. They think that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom there in the capital through military rule. And so Jesus makes clear by predicting his death for the third time, right before our passage this morning, that his kingdom is coming, not with a sword, but with a cross. And yet still, despite his third prediction of his death, the disciples have missed much of that so far. And to be fair, to their credit, Jesus has seemed practically invincible up to this point. Like Superman, no bullet has seemed to be able to hurt him. No plots of the Jews, no storms of the sea, no demonic forces have overpowered him. And so in some ways, Jesus has kind of affirmed their expectation of the kingdom that they are expecting. Matthew 19, verse 28, he says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." And so with all of this in mind, James and John have a request of him this morning. And so we read in chapter 20, verse 20. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus has just got done saying that the disciples will receive thrones, and so here is an opportunity for James and John to reclaim some of the best of those thrones, the the top two, to grapple for position in this new order of things, this new kingdom that is coming. But this is not a new issue. This is not the first time the disciples have been embroiled in this discussion of greatness in the kingdom. In chapter 18, verse 1, we see this interchange play out. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, 
Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. It's in the disciples that we, in some ways, see a mirror held up to ourselves through this interchange. We, we find in them this kind of me-first attitude that's so prevalent, not just in them, but all around us. It's the thing that, that drives us to be the first in line, to, to have the best seats, to get the, the biggest piece of cake. And what I find really funny about it is when we do it ourselves, it's innocent and natural, but in others, it's irritating and frustrating. And so you'd be surprised in this instance when questioned with greatness, Jesus pulls up a child onto his knee and says, you have to be like this guy. And I say surprised because in Jesus' day, children weren't held in high esteem. They wouldn't be singing, we believe that children are our future. They'd be singing, we believe that children are a burden. Children were not held highly. They were another mouth to feed, more responsibility. In fact, in Aramaic, the language that Jesus is most likely speaking here, the same word is used for both children and servant. Children in Jesus' day were not held as examples of greatness. And yet Jesus presents one as an example of one who's totally dependent on a father. Children care little about status. They're not put off by clothes or dirt or or color of skin. They're not concerned with grappling for greatness. And so it wasn't the first time the disciples would have this discussion of what it meant to be great within the kingdom. But it won't be the last either. The same issue pops up again at the Last Supper, arguing up to the very night that Jesus will be betrayed to his death of still who is the greatest among them. And so this morning, James and John have heard this promise that the twelve will sit on thrones along with Jesus. And I imagine they have to be thinking their chances are pretty good to have some of the best seats. They've been with Jesus since the beginning, since he called them to be fishers of men. They have the majority vote in the inner three. I mean, they're, they're shoe-ins for this. And they also have another connection as well. Matthew makes special mention that it was James and John's mother that made the request. Other gospels just put James and John. I think they really knew who was putting her up to it. And they don't want to look like total jerks, and so they do what anyone does in this situation. They get their moms to do it for them. You think like Marie Barone and Everybody Loves Raymond. You get a sense of what's going on here. But it's not just James and John's mom that's coming to them. We have a name to her. We know that her name is Salome. And she's actually Mary's sister, Jesus' mother's sister, which makes Jesus and John cousins. Jesus and James and John cousins. This is Jesus' aunt coming to him with a very specific request. You can get all that family tree information free of charge this morning. But I don't just want to take a climb into a family tree just for information. We see Jesus' aunt coming to him to exercise a family member privilege. I mean, what mother wouldn't want the best for her sons? I can kind of imagine James and John in the background suddenly very interested in, in the dirt as they make their mom make their request for them. But Jesus sees right through the ruse. It might have been their mom asking, but he knew who was really the driving force behind it. And in one respect, I, I kind of have to admire James and John for asking. I mean, it, it shows much on their part. It shows that they trust that Jesus will be a king, that, that he will bring about a kingdom, and that they have spiritual ambition to be a part of it. But still the disciples have routinely and repeatedly continued to miss the point of what Jesus' kingdom looks like. 
They have a serious case of, what we, they, of hearing what they want to hear, this kind of selective hearing. Wives, if you, are, uh, if you have a husband, you know your husbands are very adept at selective hearing, hearing what they want to hear sometimes. Uh, in fact, I brought this uh, cartoon this morning to illustrate this. What wives say is, go to the store, lay down the mulch, wash and wax the car, get the kids, cook some dinner, and do the rest of the dishes. What husbands hear is, go lay down and get some rest. You know, it's just, we, we hear what we want to hear sometimes. And so even though Jesus has repeatedly told them what his kingdom will look like and what it will take to get there, even though Jesus just said before this in verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and we will, be, will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. That's what Jesus said, but what they heard is, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered. We'll condemn the Gentiles, and he will be raised to life. They, they hear what they want to hear. They hear what they think the kingdom will look like. And so even though Jesus has demonstrated for them time and time again, they failed to recognize that his kingship is inextricably linked to his suffering. In fact, the next time that you'll hear this phrase, one on his right and one on his left, is speaking of the criminals who were crucified alongside of him. Their claim that they want to be on his right and left may be more than they bargained for. And so Jesus responds to their request, verse 22. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. I imagine the other ten were indignant not because of the request itself, but because they didn't think of it first. They didn't get to ask first. Jesus tunes into the fact that they don't know the nature of his kingdom. He says, you're comparing apples and oranges here. Can you drink of my cup? Can you be immersed in my suffering? Can you share my fate? By cup, we know that he means suffering and ultimately his death, the cup of God's wrath against sin. But James and John have to be thinking more along the lines of Psalm 16:5. Lord, you have assigned me my portion in my cup. You have made my lot secure. Or maybe Psalm 116, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. For them, this is a symbol of strength and provision and power. And so they say, of course we can handle it, Jesus. Anything you can do, we can do for you. No, you can't. Yes, we can. You know how this goes. And so what's funny to me is the next line, Jesus says, you will indeed drink from my cup, but I can't give you the seats. It seems like he's pulling a fast one. You, you will pay the price, but I can't give you the goods. It's like me saying to my wife, hey, babe, do you want some ice cream? And she says, sure. I say, great. Can you make me a bowl while you get yours? You know, uh, I, I don't really do that often, but uh, yeah, it's just kind of like you're, you're, you're changing the circumstances, you're changing the rules of the game here. But what Jesus is really doing is telling them what their fate will be, what it will look like to continue to follow him. And if sure enough, what he foretells comes to fruition. Of the 12 disciples, James will be the first martyr, the one first killed for his faith. And John will be the last exiled to the island of Patmos as an old man. And so it's easy to pick on these two. But this isn't just a James and John issue. You would think after three years with him, they would, they would have a greater understanding of who he was and why he came. That they would know his kingdom, what it would look like. 
But even after 2,000 years, we still often miss the message. And so I think we need to pay particular attention as Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 25. It says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus essentially tells James and John what he told Peter last week. Don't be concerned with grappling for power until you understand where power truly comes from. Don't, don't be concerned with going for greatness in my kingdom until you know what my kingdom is like. He says, don't be like the Gentile rulers who lord it over them, literally impose their power on people. Jesus is warning them against becoming like the people in their world and ours that are filled with selfish ambition and overconfidence and will trample whoever and whatever necessary to fulfill their desires. When we think of Gentile rulers, Jesus even gives us some examples. We see some examples throughout the Gospels. People like Herod, people like Pilate. We see these Gentile rulers that, because of their power, are put in perilous positions. In Matthew 14, we're told of this conflict between John the Baptist and one of the Herods. The issue is that Herod steals Herodias, his half-brother's wife, who's also his niece. It's like, yeesh, this is like the setting for the first episode of Jerry Springer happening right here in the biblical pages. And so even John the Baptist is, you know, that, you can't do that. Dude, that's not right. And yet it gets worse when his stepdaughter performs a dance for him. And you can imagine what kind of dance it was. It wasn't the tango, I can promise you that. He's so pleased that he promises her up to half his kingdom. But instead, due to her mother's beckoning, she demands the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In chapter 14, verse 9, says, The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. Here we have this one who is supposedly a king, supposedly in charge, and yet pressured by the promises that he made when he wasn't thinking correctly, and pressured by the popular opinion of those around him at his party, he caves to the whims of a little girl. Think about Pilate, this, this governor, this, this, this man who's so afraid of, of losing his power that he condemns an innocent man to die, washes his hands of all decision-making because of his perilous political position. We look at these Gentile rulers and we see what their power looks like. We see one cave to the whims of a little girl to save face, and the other cave to the whims of an angry mob to maintain his position. What Jesus shows us is that those who consider themselves leaders are often more concerned about conveying the appearance of leadership. Jesus tells us what it means to be truly great in his kingdom with one of those radical statements that only Jesus can say. He says, you want to be great? Then become a servant. You want to have power? Then become a slave. Jesus tells us that kingdom greatness is measured in service not status. You see, the prevailing worldview of nearly every culture in all time is to climb as high as you can on the social ladder. But Jesus turns that on its head and says it's through service, not status, that we find our significance. 
Slaves and servants were the working class, the blue collar, and in a society that, that despised manual labor, they were the ones to get their hands dirty. Most of them owned so little, many of them didn't even own themselves. And yet these are the people that Jesus says we must be like, because these are the people that he was like. He says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The King of the universe came not to grapple for power, but to show what service looks like. And we see him serve in these ways, like John 13, the night before his death, when it would be appropriate for Jesus to be grasping for glory. Instead, he takes off his outer robe and he wraps himself in a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. Job reserved for the lowest of the low. If you had a Gentile slave in your household, this was the job for them. This is, this is scrubbing toilets. This is scooping out the dog poop from the backyard. This is the job that nobody wanted to do. But instead, demanding his own pedicure, Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the king over creation, bends his knee to wash his disciples' feet. They're dusty, crusty, dirty, cracked feet. And Philippians 2 encourages us to serve in much the same way as he did. This is a passage many of you have heard before, but I want you to hear it with, with new ears as we relate to how Jesus served us. Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, we model our service in the form of the one who submitted himself to death and humiliation of the cross. But I think we miss this, and we miss the impact of this, because too often we have a too limited view of the cross. We talk about the cross, and we love to portray it as a means and symbol of our salvation, and it is. In the cross, Jesus did indeed pay our penalty, pay the price that we owed. Jesus said he gave his life as a ransom for many. But we also see that, as one of my professors said, Mark Moore, the cross is not just something we appreciate, it's something that we imitate. The cross shows us the extent to which we are called to serve. The cross is the sentence of slavery unto death. And with a charge like that, you might be thinking, why would I want to serve like that? Why would I want to put myself in such a thankless position to be taken advantage of? How can being selfless unto death lead to true power? To answer that question, I want to tell you a story of a man named Arlen D. Williams, Jr., we see it all over the place sometimes, buildings, hospitals, college campuses, where certain names are ascribed to those buildings, to those campuses. And most of the time, people uh, have their names on those buildings because they're rich or powerful. They're influential, they donated lots of money, but the Arlen D. Williams Bridge that crosses the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. was named for none of those typical reasons. In January of 1982, some of you might even remember this, Air, Flight Florida, Air Florida Flight 90 was taking off out of Washington National on an old, old, cold, icy day, 
uh, when it began to lose altitude. It hit the 14th Street Bridge and went into the river. And when the rescue helicopter arrived, the plane was mostly gone, broken into sinking sections, and yet the tail was still sticking out. Yet there were only a few people having survived in the tail section. And one man in particular, unknown to many before that day, Arlen D. Williams Jr., was the most visible, the most accessible, and he looked like he was the most aware of what was going on. He wasn't exceptional in the usual sense of the word. He was middle-aged, he was balding, he was just a normal guy. But when rescuers and the rescue helicopter lowered a harness and a lifeline to him, every time they pulled it back up, there was someone else in it. The first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, he put somebody else in it. Every time that harness came down, he gave his plate piece of salvation to somebody else. Until the last time they went back and the tail was gone and so was Arlen Williams. You see, the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Bridge exists today not because of a man who sought notoriety. Not because of a man who was looking out for himself as number one. But because of an ordinary man who sacrificed everything to serve for the good of others. And as I think of Arlen Williams and, and what he did, I think a little bit about the opportunities that we have to give of ourselves sacrificially. If we can have one ordinary man give up his place to five others so that they might be saved, how much more can we serve in small sacrificial ways? In our marriages, where we can serve instead of keeping score. In our workplaces, where we can give our best as we represent Jesus. In our churches, where we can do the thankless jobs and the hard ministries that no one else will do because we see that we are not serving for ourselves, but serving for our Lord. In our communities, where we serve our neighbors as we do ourselves. By modeling our service and sacrifice to the cross, we give others the hope of the eternal life that we have. Paul concludes Philippians chapter 2 with verse 9. It says, because Jesus submitted himself to the cross, because he served, because he became obedient even to death, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You ask, why would I put myself in a position to be used and taken advantage of and and serve in such, meaning, in such meaningless, harmed, hard ways. Because of the cross. And because of the resurrection. In the cross there is suffering. In the cross there is death. But in the cross there is also victory. Because the cross gives way to the empty tomb where there is exaltation and glory. And so my prayer this morning for each of us is that we might adopt the same humble stance of service. Whatever form it takes, I want to encourage you to service because service is the greatest means that we have to advance the kingdom. As Jesus has been talking about his kingdom throughout this gospel, as we've been studying it, he tells us the currency in which his, his, his kingdom operates is serving one another. Serving one another with loving sacrifice. Jesus didn't just cling to power and life, but rather submitted himself to the Father's will and was obedient to death. Rather than imitating the ways of the world, we should, consider, we should shoulder the condition of the cross as we live not to be served, but to serve. And so this morning, I want to present to each of us the opportunity for us to accept and live out 
A life not just of salvation, but of service. A life that prompts us to realize that in the shadow of the cross, the commission is to serve. To serve when it's easy and to serve when it's hard. To serve when there's no reward, to serve when it's demeaning, to serve when we want to and when we don't want to. To serve because kingdom greatness is measured in service, not status. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And our prayer is a simple one, that you would remind us of the call you have placed on us to serve, to give sacrificially, to live as servants and slaves as measures of greatness in your kingdom. Jesus, it's so easy as we walk through this world, even as citizens of your kingdom, to forget that you've called us to serve in this way. It grates against our nature to, to lay down what we want in favor of others. And we want to pursue the best and the brightest and the greatest and do whatever it takes to get there, but you have called us to something different. So Jesus, please let us not be lured by the temptation of, of empty leadership, like these Gentiles that we see in Matthew's gospel, who crave the position of leadership without being true leaders. But help us to see that kingdom leadership is servant leadership. Help us to see that the path that you have laid out before us is one of submission just as you submitted yourself. Jesus, it's my prayer that we would serve not just so that we can achieve greatness in your kingdom, but so that others might see what your kingdom looks like, what you as its king looks like. Jesus, we thank you for submitting yourself to death on the cross that we might have life in you and to show us the example of a true service and sacrifice looks like. Thank you, Jesus, for being our good and loving King who gave up everything that you could be with us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.